Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Surge. My name is E. Reese. Uh, Dwayne is actually not here. He's in Lynchburg with his daughter. Uh, he, she just had a baby. And, and I would tell you the baby's name and how long it was because it's very interesting and how much it weighed, but I'm a guy and that didn't occur to me till literally just now. So sorry about that. But Dwayne has a new, a new grandchild on the way. He's with his family this week, so he hasn't abandoned us. Um, so I am filling in. Uh, we are continuing our Forgotten War series, and today we are talking about spiritual warfare from a very particular context related to the armor of God. So let's dig into Ephesians 6, and uh, let's see what we can find here. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." It's a great passage. <laughs> it is a great passage. It, it, it's a key point. And one of the things that we want to call to the front of our attention in this entire series is this. It's simply this. We are at war. And that's an odd thought for us in, in, the, modern, in the modern age, especially in, in Western thought. We don't think of our spiritual lives in this kind of terms, but hang with me. Hang with me. I want to make the case. And... and I want to pull four things from this passage, and here they are. The devil is not a metaphor, okay? The devil is not a metaphor. Second thing is this, don't fight in your pajamas. The third thing is the gospel is the armor. And the fourth is wage a different kind of war. So the devil's not a metaphor. Don't fight in your pajamas. The gospel is the armor. And wage a different kind of war. So let's start with this. The devil's not a metaphor. Now, related to the devil or the adversary or Satan, there are two errors that we can make. And there's a famous passage by C.S. Lewis where he talks about the two errors. And the, and the first error is this, that we give him all the credit in the world, right? It's everything is, is uh, caused by Satan. You know, think of the church lady in Saturday Night Live. Well, perhaps Satan did it. You know, it's Satan in the mirror and it's Satan in the hairbrush and Satan causing traffic and it's Satan, you know, and responsible for all your bad decisions. And, and we can give Satan all the credit in the world and everything points to Satan and there's an unhealthy interest in Satan and demons and scary and fear and all the things associated with. The other error that we can make is we don't believe in Satan at all, <laughs> right? right? And that's much more the Northern Virginia path, the Washington, D.C., where we're enlightened and we're smart and we're sophisticated, and we just don't believe in an actual literal devil at all. The, the quote from Lewis that's really famous, he says that, that one error is, is the magician that thinks everything is magical. The other, other error is the materialist that thinks everything is just physics and matter. 
and the demons are equally delighted with both, right? Either way, they are super happy because you're simplifying evil to the point where you don't understand it and you cannot be effective against it. So everything is demonic or nothing is. And it's a value in our culture. We want to be smart and not dumb. We, we want to be sophisticated. We, we don't want to be simplistic. And we want to embrace the idea, the modern idea, um, that we operate from evidence, right? We operate from evidence and not just squishy feelings and not just supernatural uh, hocus pocus. We want everything that we see to have a scientific explanation. And so when we look at crime and racism, when you listen to about it on the news, they talk about the psychological factors. They talk about the bad sociological factors. And if you look at it from that point of view, what's the fix? What's the solution? The solution is we need a better president or we need a better Congress or we need a better school system or we need a better economic system or we need a better police department. We need a better gun law and that'll fix it. And things will all be magical and light and good if only we could address the psychosocial, cultural issues and deal with things at that level. Here's the problem. It's hopelessly naive, right? It's hopelessly naive. We are much more complicated than that. We're much more complicated than that. And what's happening, and, and let me just call it now, what you're going to see over the next 10 years is an ever-widening gulf. We're already seeing it but an ever-widening gulf between the visibility of no-kidding evil and our intellectual ability to deal with it by passing a law or a policy or, you know, thinking that we're more enlightened. See, we're, we're more technologically sophisticated than we've ever been in the history of mankind, but the reality is we're not more morally sophisticated. Watch the news, right? There's lots of tension. There's lots of disagreement. There's lots of violence. And somehow our ability to have the internet on the phones in our pocket has not translated to making us better people. I'm reminded of Silence of the Lambs and I'm thinking of the book now, although you can't read the book without hearing Anthony Hopkins' voice at this point. But the very first meeting with Agent Starling when she comes and talks to Hannibal Lecter, who's this awful serial killer, and she's talking to the doctor uh, right outside his cell and she says, I wonder, wonder what, what happened to him? What happened to him to twist him in this way, right? And she's looking for a reason to, uh, an explanation for why Lecter is the way he is. And he hears her. He overhears what she's saying. It's like, you know, bad move, Starling. He's going to take her to school. And he says, Agent Starling, he says, nothing, nothing happened to me. I happened to me. <laughs> you know, he, he says, you can't reduce me to a set of influences. You can't even bring yourself to say good or evil, can you? Look at me. He's like, and he's saying, look at me. Can you look at me and say, this is evil? And, and we can't. We have, we have trouble with that in our culture. We, we want to talk in terms, and we make up words. We want to talk in terms of dysfunction. We want to talk in terms of pathology. We, wanna, we, we don't want to talk about people actually, no kidding, literally participating in evil directly, <laughs> right? And, and the thing that I want to make the case for this morning is that there is a cause, a cause beyond the mental, psychological, sociological factors. <laughs> There's actually an agent at work to make flawed people worse, to push us in bad directions. That's an actual thing in the earth. It's an actual thing. See, the, the problem with with our, our era, which is the, the materialist era, we, we, we want to say there's no, there's no devil at all, 
is if you say you want to fix it with education and science, you, you don't have to get very far in history to see that doesn't work very well. You know, there, there was a, a country in Europe not that long ago, um, great educational system, decent economy, um, kind of known for their scientific prowess and uh, their engineering. And you know what they did? <laughs> they, they became racist as a country <laughs> and they systemically murdered six million people with, with you know, German precision <laughs> engineering. The Nazis were horrible. They were great scientifically. They had a wonderful education program. The trains ran on time, but it didn't, it didn't fix the moral problem that Satan pushes us to, right? See, the Bible has a different, a different take. Some angels fell, right? The devil and his demons, they're personal supernatural beings. Um, and the psychological, sociological factors, for sure, I don't want to deny those, they can absolutely aggravate things. They can shape um, the innate self-absorption that we have, our tendencies to do bad things. Those things can shape it, but they don't create it, right? It's there. They can push, but it's there already. And, and, and here's the thing, <laughs> and, and th- this will be surprising to at least somebody in this room. Do you know, do you know that not every thought you think is from you? Can I say that out loud? Not every thought you think is from you. Sometimes it's the snake in the garden and he's talking to you, he's chewing on you, right? That thing that you really want, he says, the lies that he starts to spout, that thing that you really want to be like God, God's gonna withhold that from you unfairly. He's gonna be abusive to you. If you really obey God, you'll never really get what you want. You'll never really be satisfied in your life. But if you disobey him, oh my goodness, then you'll see clearly. Just step away from the backwards, you know, old way of thinking. Step away from that outdated, restrictive mode of behavior and, and, and don't trust God. Don't trust him with your sexual life. Don't trust him with your economic life. Don't trust him with your financial life. Don't trust him with your emotional life, your physical life and health. Instead, do what seems right to you, just like everybody else does. It's going to be fine. It's no, it's no big deal. Go for it. Do you know that not every feeling you feel comes from you, <laughs> right? It's not that Satan has his power to control us like puppets, but he can, he can push us and he can poke us and he can introduce, that's the nature of temptation. Has anybody been tempted in the room? Like, do you, is, this, is this a foreign experience to us, right? I, I can remember and I was, I was widowed at 22. Um, my wife died in November. A few weeks later is about this time of year. Sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, we sit down to Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, it's that horrible moment of there's an empty chair, right, where she would be and there's, she's not there. And, and in my head, and I'm, I'm not making this up, in my head it's like, she's not there, she's not there, and it just, it just spiraled completely out of control. And I swear, it, it wasn't audible voices, but it was pretty close. She's not there, she's not there, she'll never be there, she'll never be there, she'll be alone. And, just, and it was just this, I mean, it, it was like there was a hundred demonic voices in my head shouting at me, you know, the thing that I was most afraid of. And, and it was a, just a complete panicked moment for me. And I'm, I remember, it was so alien and so foreign that I remember thinking in the middle of that, this is kind of weird. It's like, this, is this what it's like to know kidding go crazy? Is this, is this what it's like to be mad? I mean, to, to, to experience madness. And it, but it was so foreign to the way I normally think of the things that normally bother me that it was so clearly other. <laughs> that reflexively, without even thinking about it, I just said, God, this is not from you. Make this stop. You know what happened? Stopped. 
I mean, like, I'm, I'm not talking, it kind of, it didn't, it didn't settle down. It stopped like you unplugged it from the wall. And, you know, you say, wow, he's really spiritual. That was really good. It's like, n- no, I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't expect that to work, <laughs> right? I was surprised that it worked. It, but you see, not every thought that we have is from us. Sometimes there are things that can, <laughs> that can come at us. And don't put up with that. You don't have to always suffer through the things that come to attack us. I can remember when I was a little kid, uh, probably about Evangeline's age, I just went through a period where every single night I would just have horrible nightmares, kind of the night terrors thing, and I'd wake up just terrified, just just terrified. And I thought, somebody's coming into the house to get me. And you know, I'd look in the closet, and I'm, I'm, I was sure somebody was standing in the closet. And just, and just this unbelievable fear and, and I just remember I mentioned it to a Sunday school teacher. And she says to me, have you prayed over your dreams? Have you prayed over, you know, scripture says that he gives his beloved rest. Have you prayed over your dreams? And I went, huh, no, I really haven't done that. And it was the first great spiritual lesson in my life. Like, Lord, I, I know you want me to rest and sleep at night. I don't want to be afraid. I don't think you want me to be afraid. Would you just help me not have bad dreams? <laughs> you know, I could count on one hand the number of bad dreams I've had in my life since then. Don't, don't let your mind be Satan's playground. Don't put up with it. We don't have to, we don't have to, to do this. See, see we, think, <laughs> we think that it's, Satan's not involved unless, you know, the head spins all the way around and there's green vomit involved, you know, like, like the exorcist. Well, but the reality is Satan picks on us in little ways and there are skirmishes that happen day to day. Now, in the Ephesians 6 passage, the word for devil the wiles and schemes of the devil, the word there is diabolos. And you go, oh yeah, I recognize that one. Diabolical, right? Diabolical. But the actual root of diabolos, it literally means to lie and to slander. Isn't that interesting? To lie and to slander. Not so much the crawling on the walls of green vomit. It's much more lying and slander. And if you think about the Garden of Eden, isn't that what we see? Satan doesn't try to possess Eve. He doesn't try to demonize Eve. He just lies to her, right? He just tells her stuff that isn't true. Um, it was fascinating. I, I, I stumbled on, um, again, this is English literature nerd. Uh, there was a, in the 17th century, there was a guy named Richard Baxter. He was a Christian pastor in England. And he actually has a famous work on melancholy, which was old-timey language for depression. <laughs> and, and, he, and he talks about depression in some really interesting ways. And he says there's, there's basically four causes, four things you need to look at if you're depressed or you're experiencing this. And he says the first one is physical, right? There might be a physical cause for depression. And, and in that case, what you should look at is you might need rest or food or medicine, <laughs> right? And, and, and that, that makes sense. He says there might be a psychological cause, um, and, and, you know, there's something that's just, just bothering you. There's something you're not able to reconcile. He says, in that case, what you need, the prescription that Baxter gives is you just need love and support. Find, find people who can talk to you and, and counsel you and that you can kind of uh, process through things with. He doesn't say it that way, but that's the way we would say it. So you have the physical, the psychological. He says the third, the third thing that might cause depression or melancholy would be a moral cause. Maybe you've done something. You can't undo it. There's a damage that can't be easily remedied and you feel guilty about it. Maybe something's been done to you 
Maybe you've been mishandled in some way. And maybe you're angry about it. Maybe you're bitter about it. Maybe you're carrying those things and you just don't feel like you can get a handle on it. You don't feel like you can fix it. And it makes you depressed. But it's a moral cause. And what does he prescribe there? (laughs) You, You need forgiveness, Either to give or receive, you, you need reconciliation. You, you step into some of the things that Jesus can bring us in terms of addressing the guilt that you feel, right? Fourth thing he says, and this is really interesting, he says there might be a demonic cause. It might be Satan, you know, going, she's not there, she's not there, she's not there, ah! You know, it's kind of, it, it might actually be something other than you. He says, in that case, you need to pray. But if you look at the two errors, Right? If everything is demonic, everything is demonic, you overlook the really simple first two explanations of physical, psychological. The reality is what you might need to not feel bad is you might need a bowl of soup and eight hours of sleep, right? That might be an excellent prescription for what you need to feel better. And and don't overlook that. It's not always the demonic attack. It's not always the spiritual thing. but if you take the, the error that we tend to, right, which is there's no devil at all. There's, there's no actual literal devil. Come on, that's, that's just, there's no actual personal being. You completely overlook the moral causes and the guilt that we feel. You completely overlook the fact that maybe, maybe you're under a form of spiritual attack. I mean, listen, I'm, I, I have as many issues as anybody, but if I had gone to say it this way, if I'd gone to a psychiatrist after my Thanksgiving episode, that dude would have pushed hard to put me on some kind of weird psychotropic medicine. It's not what I needed, right? I needed to pray is what I needed in that moment, right? (sighs) Okay. I I just thought it was really interesting that a guy from the 17th century has a better handle on, you know, a holistic picture of depression than we do. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting um, how sometimes going back, we find real wisdom uh, from people who don't know anything particularly. I just want to say this. There is a devil. There are demons. And, and in, our, in our day, if, if it's hard for you to wrap your head around that or it's hard for you to accept that, uh, let me just consider, consider it this way. Let me make a case. <laughs> in Africa, in South America, in uh, India, in Bangladesh, in, in, in countries around the Pacific Rim, all these people, they have zero issue at all, no problems at all thinking about the devil. They go, yep, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, there are clearly demonic influences. There's lots of stuff in my life. That's a reasonable and good explanation. They, and they go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They don't have any trouble believing in a supernatural entity. And so could, could you just, as a thought experiment, say, <laughs> you know what? Maybe Western thought, maybe American culture, it might be that we don't have 100% of all the answers in every case that we could be open culturally to what, no kidding, billions of people on earth think about the devil. Could we at least consider the idea, right? Consider the idea. Here's another thing. (laughs) Do you believe in God? Sure. Why? Why do you believe in God? So you believe in a personal supernatural being that's good, but you don't believe in a personal supernatural being that's evil. Why not? It's the same, it's the same thing. It's coming from the same place. Um, third thing is this. Bible is really clear on this issue. Super clear. Super clear. 
in Genesis, in the book of Job, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in the Gospels, Jesus has an encounter with a personal devil. The devil is not a metaphor. The devil is not a nameless, faceless force. The devil's a guy. I mean, it, it, he's, he's a person that's an individual that's bad, that hates you. In Revelation, the devil is a character that's bad, that hates you and wants to destroy you. He's an actual person. From front to back, the Bible's really clear that the devil exists and that he has plans for you that are not good ones. The devil is not just a metaphor. The devil's not just a metaphor. Second thing is this, and, and the rest of these will much, move much faster. Don't fight in your pajamas, right? That seems to go without saying. However, often we try to, try to do this. Um, uh, we're in the NFL playoffs, I think. We're in the NFL playoffs, is that right? I haven't really been, I got a concussion, I haven't really been able to watch. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, so, the NFL players are happening, the Super Bowl will be happening in a, in a few weeks. And I just want you to imagine this. One of the teams, they run out to the rock song and the video and the, and the explosions and they run out and they've got their pads and the helmet and the stuff and they run out onto the field and they're ready to go and they're, they're jumping around and they're very excited and they've already got a lot of adrenaline going and they're ready for the big game. And the other team runs out bare feet in their, in their pajamas and they're clearly not as ready to go. And you go, that's a, stu- that's a stupid example. It is a stupid example. So don't do that, okay? Don't, don't fight in your pajamas. It, the interesting thing about the passage in Ephesians 6 is all of the verbs, if you look at the tense of the verbs, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's already on. You put it on at a previous time, right? The, the time to suit up, the time to gear up is not in the middle of the battle. <laughs> Can we just say that? When you put on the suit of armor, you do it before you need it, not when you need it, Right? And the arrows are flying towards you and there's an arrow coming to your face and, and, and you're thinking, honey, where's my shield? Have you seen my shield? <laughs> did, did I leave it behind the thing? Where's the shield? Can I, it's the wrong time to be looking for your shield. You need to have it on your arm. It needs to be ready to go, <laughs> right? The thing that, that we do though is when, when times are quiet, when times are good, when time that we should be preparing with the armor of God, what we actually do is we coast, Right? Prayer slips, involvement with God slips. We're not working on deep spiritual growth. If we do anything related to Christianity, we're looking for inspiration or guidance or something to kind of jazz us and entertain us today. And, and when things go bad, when things go bad, when the crisis happens, that's when we get serious. That's when we start to plug in. That's when we really pray. That's when we really start to pay attention. But what Paul is suggesting is this. It's really simple that's the wrong time to gear up, right? You need to gear up before then to be ready when the battle happens. Look at every day, every day, tomorrow. Look at tomorrow as a testing ground. And it's a chance for us to suit up, to be battle ready. Let me just talk about two stupid little things that, uh, that hit me, right? Two temptations um, that, that we deal with that, that have a bigger impact than we think. Uh, first one would be this, impatience with people, right? Anybody been on the beltway behind Mr. Magoo lately? <laughs> it's like, you know, he comes out of his apartment in Arlington to drive slowly in front of me to bother me. That's, that's the only thing he's doing. Um, but but what, what I, my internal monologue is really harsh. Idiot, moron, oh my gosh. Someone on TV, they say something, it's stupid. Oh, ah, you know, and, and the reality is I have a really harsh and incredibly judgmental and incredibly condescending 
attitude towards people I really don't know much about, <laughs> right? And, and what does it do? What does it do if I allow that to continue? That, that impatience with people, that no kidding, sniping judgment of dismissing them as a person because of the stupid thing they said, what does it do? It makes me harder. It makes me less compassionate, right? What is God's heart toward them? <laughs> God sees them as someone created in his image. He sees them as imago Dei. He sees them as having amazing value and potential. And when I write them off because of something that's stupid they said or did, I'm disconnecting my own thinking and my own way through the world from where God is. Don't do that. Don't do that, Eric. <laughs> it's bad for me when I do that. Just from being impatient, I'm taking, I'm stripping off the armor and walking into battle without my stuff on. Give, give you another example. Worry. All of us are prone to worry, I, th- I think. Um, and I heard this this I heard somebody say this this week and it caught my ear. He said, worry is a form of pride. And I went, what? <laughs> what? And I thought about it and thought about it and I think there might be something to that. Uh, let's just imagine tomorrow as an example. Just assume for a second that God, ha- that God is uh, capable of being God and that he has a good plan for you for tomorrow. And what does that involve? Well, probably lots of things, who, who knows? But probably he, he wants you to center up in him. He wants you to put on the armor of God. He wants you to, to suit up. And he wants you to be aware of the things that are happening in your life. He wants you to do well at work. He wants you to do well at school. He wants you <laughs> to be loving to the folks that are around you. He wants you to be open to small acts of kindness and generosity because sometimes they can have a weight that go beyond what we even intend. He wants you to notice the girl at the cash register whose husband left her and she's kind of beside herself. And you know, the, the whole, hey, you know what? God loves you. He cares about you and your well-being. And just that little, that little bomb, that little blessing, all of a sudden it's like, it's a lifeline for her. It's not just a throwaway sentence. It's something that actually literally, no kidding, pushes back the darkness. Instead, what we do, or what I do, is imagine, we imagine a future where everything goes wrong, where everything is against us, where no plan will ever be fulfilled or satisfied, where we don't have enough money, we don't have the relationships we want, we don't have God's plan for us, we don't, everything is, is punitive, everything is against us, everything is bad, everything is, is against me, and, and I'm just, I'm spinning out, I'm imagining scenarios that are, by the way, not real, or at least not real yet, right? And I'm experiencing them as if they were real. And what I'm doing is I'm disconnecting my thinking and my way of walking through the world from where God wants me to be. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Scripture says about worry, it says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious about nothing. Instead, pray. Let your requests be made known unto God. If you're worried about something, I don't have enough money to pay the bills. God, you know that I need human food to eat. God, you know that it's cold outside. You know that I need a safe place to stay. Would you please show me what I can do to get a better job or to find a line of finances to take care of myself and my family? Would you please show me what I need to do? And then look for an answer. Jesus says, don't worry about material stuff. God knows you need need these things. He watches over the birds of the air, he, he watches over the, the flowers of the field. He loves you even more than he loves them. Don't worry about it, right? You, you can't make yourself taller or shorter or richer by worrying about it. So don't do that. Find another way to go through the world. 
See, even normal days, even usual days, have these spiritual skirmishes that we can win or lose that make a huge difference to us. A huge difference to us whenever the crisis comes. If we can handle the small things well, guess what? We can handle the big things well. With faith, with nobility of heart. And we can respond with a strength and with a faith and with a poise instead of a panic that helps no one, including us, right? So learn your armor and test it out before you're in the game, before you're in the battle. Is it weird that we have to say that out loud? Okay, so the third thing is this. Devil's not a metaphor, don't fight in your pajamas. Third thing is this. The gospel is the armor. (laughs) This is the thought that really captured me this week. Every piece of the armor that's described is actually something that God gives us in full whenever we become a Christian. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are saved, we're redeemed, and we're redeemed all the way. We're not redeemed part way that, you know, we kind of step into later. It's like, no, we're actually redeemed, fully redeemed. So the helmet of salvation is something that we possess objectively, externally. God says, that's true of you now. And yet Paul is telling us to take these pieces of things that are, in some sense, a done deal. And he's saying, act as if they're clothing, Act as if they are items that you put on, that you take into yourself, that you cover your life with and walk day to day because it'll help you, <laughs> right? So it's not that we, we become righteous, but if we put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our heart, <laughs> right? It, it helps us in a very particular way. And so what, what I want to do is just really quickly, let's go through all the pieces and just say something really fun and interesting about them that will just capture your imaginations like nothing ever before, and then, uh, then we'll wrap up. <laughs> the gospel is the armor. So, so here we go. The belt of truth. Uh, the belt is, is not, not a belt like we think of. You know, it's like I'm wearing a belt right now so I don't stand pantsless in the gaze of destiny. You know, it's, it's good to... It's like this, this is a different thing. It's a leather sheath. Um, it's kind of a skirt or a girdle. I just ruined it for you, sorry. Um, but it's a Roman thing. It's actually a thick bit of leather goes around the waist, covers the lower torso, covers the legs, and it's actually the foundational piece of the armor. (laughs) It was actually underneath everything else, was put on first. It was the foundational piece of the armor. And this is the belt of truth. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? (sighs) The belt of truth. If the enemy, Diabolos, if the enemy is primarily attacking us with lies, then let our primary foundational defense be not lies. Let it be truth. It's primary for our protection. Um, And it isn't our truth. It isn't our opinion. It isn't, you know, the guy on the internet that, you know, is too loud for for human words. Uh, It's God's truth. Does that make sense? Because because what's fun about this is it's the armor of God. It's not the armor of clear thinking. It's not the armor of willpower. It's not the armor of self-help. It's the armor of God. It's not your armor. It's infused with a, a divine attribute that is not your own, and yet we get to wear it. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness, right? Um, and and this, this is a central idea that all the pieces of the armor are something that are 100% ours with the gospel, but Paul is telling us 
to wear the gospel in a way that is functional, right, and useful, to treat the external realities of spiritual life and the benefit as if they were a suit of armor to be worn. It's fascinating. And so righteousness here, it's not the the righteousness that's a consensual out there, right? That this is a righteousness that is stepping into the power of the Spirit. It's stepping into the rightness of Christ in our lives. It's walking them out in obedience day to day. And it's critical. Listen, you can get hit, you can have an arrow hit your arm, right? And that's bad. It's probably not going to kill you. Have one in your heart or get a couple of arrows in your lungs and you're done, right? The breastplate of righteousness covers our heart. And, and it's something that, uh, that is critical, Next piece is this, the boots of the gospel of peace. Um, you can't move troops without good shoes, not effectively anyway. Um, and, and this one has the most interesting phrasing to me, the whole put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It, it's just an interesting way to, to say it. There's a willingness here to share what you found, to share the love of God in words, in actions, in resources, in prayer, Uh, This is the piece that facilitates us moving from the place where we prep, the place where we put on the armor, to the battleground of our relationships, our communities, our families, to the place where we can actually be a blessing. Next piece is the shield of faith. Um, Faith is more than gritting your teeth and being stubborn and believing something. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. It's much more than that, right? It comes from experiencing God's word and responding to it in a way, in a way that's deeply understood. And when the adversary attacks us with doubt or accusation or thoughts or feelings to harm us, we counter with faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith that he loves us. Faith that he has good things for us. Uh, Faith in his promises, right? We have something that we can hang the shield on that can defend us against the things that come to attack. And this is the one piece of armor that works well with the others. It's not, it's not the thing that we normally think about. This is more like a door. <laughs> and it could actually interlock with other doors and protect us from arrows. It was a really cool thing. It could actually keep a community or many people together safe. Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. I love, love, love that this is not the helmet of doctrine or the helmet of of being right about this or that. It's not the helmet of arguing on the internet, thank goodness. You know, uh, what protects your head, your head, isn't your ability to think critically or logically. Thank goodness, because we're not very smart for the most part. Um, What protects us is the knowledge of what the gospel says about you. It's the helmet of salvation. (laughs) And what God says about you in relation to salvation is this. You're valuable. You are incredibly loved, right? You are redeemed. You're saved by the work of Christ. And there's nothing you can do that can pluck you, that can get you away from God's grasp. You're safe. You're completely safe. That's a good headspace, right? You know, what's going to protect your thinking more than that? We can make all kinds of of weird arguments that are not going to get as far as that one will take you. I love that the helmet of salvation is the thing that protects, protects us in that way. Sword of the Spirit. Now, in John chapter 1, it says, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's the logos, the, the, the 
thing that makes sense of the universe, the word of God. This is actually a different word when it says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. This word is rhema in the Greek. And the sense is that it's a very specific word from God to you for the situation at hand. Um, that, and in scripture, I see this playing out in, in two primary ways. One is as a confirmation, right? Um, Paul gets the bright light, he's blinded, he's called on the, the way to Damascus. He's actually in a house and God starts talking to him. You know what? I'm calling you to this thing. Here's what your ministry is going to look like. Here's what your life is going to look like. It's going to be amazing. There's going to be some really hard things. But then he also gets a guy over here named Ananias and says, there's a guy named Paul. I want you to go talk to him. I want you to go tell him that he's got some amazing things in store for his ministry. It's going to be hard, but there's going to be some stuff. So Ananias makes his way over to Paul and he tells Paul exactly what God has already told Paul. And Paul goes, whoa, wasn't just the burrito I ate. There's actually something going on here, right? And it's just this wonderful, marvelous, subjective confirmation of somebody who knows something about you that you know that they could never know, but it's just this wonderful divine confirmation. It's really cool. That happens in scripture a few times. Another, another way that this plays out is this, the rhema, the specific word uh, for the specific situation. Think Jesus being tempted by the devil early in his ministry. You know, Satan comes up and tells him and says, do this and do that. And Jesus says, nope, no. <laughs> and quotes him scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. All three, all three responses that Jesus gives to Satan are from the book of Deuteronomy. And, and, and again, the, the time to learn that is not, you know, Satan comes at you with something, you go, wait, wait, let me check my concordance, hang on, <laughs> you know, okay, just give, give me a minute, you know, and, and you, you look around for now. The time to prepare for that is beforehand. Jesus comes back immediately with an answer because he knew what Deuteronomy had to say. He had read it, it was in his heart. And he was able to come back with, what you're saying is contrary to what God says. Here's what God says, and it shuts him down. It's, it's an amazing interaction. But this is the sense of the sword of the spirit. When you're attacked by an accusation, you're attacked by temptation, you're attacked by a lie, you can come back with the truth as revealed God's word, and you can just hammer him with it. You can hammer him with it. Uh, the last thing of, last piece of the armor of God is not one that we normally think of. It's prayer. And I'm adding prayer in because Paul rolls right in with prayer. And I think it's an important part of the toolkit. Uh, last few weeks, I've seen a lot of non-believers in my feed whom I love dearly. But um, they've recently gone on a tirade about thoughts and prayers, <laughs> especially related to the, the gun control stuff. And I, I understand the point. But at the same time, prayer is not a meaningless, empty set of words. It isn't worthless. It's one of the primary ways, one of the primary ways that we align ourselves with God, with his work in the earth, and his amazing power to change us, has amazing power to change the world around us. So don't leave that one at home when you go to war. Jesus prayed, taught us to pray. Paul prayed. He calls us to pray as part of spiritual warfare. It's important. So, <laughs> the devil's not a metaphor. Don't fight in your pajamas. The gospel is the armor. The very last thing is this. Wage a different kind of war. W when the Jews were waiting for Messiah in the first century, they were expecting a military leader, a military hero. They were expecting someone to come 
And what they were hoping for was someone who would come and turn the Roman Empire on its ear, right? That would take Herod and tell him where to go, you know, and, and give him a place to go there. Uh, and he thought he would come back as a military conqueror. Maybe Jesus would be emperor. Maybe the Messiah would be a conquering hero like Caesar, like um, Genghis Khan, you know, something like that. He would sweep the earth, set things to right, and that's what, that's what they were hoping for. Uh, what they actually got in the first century was a guy who was a teacher, right? Who walked around Galilee and, you know, didn't have a lot of money, talked to the marginalized and the weak. He was, this was the guy that healed people and fed the hungry. He made time for people that society cast out, but he did not come as a general. He did not come to build an army. When Peter in Gethsemane draws a sword and attacks the Roman soldier, Jesus didn't say, yeah, let's get him. He says, no, put that away. <laughs> stop, stop that. Make no mistake. God came as a man to wage war against evil. Make no mistake about it. But the problem was that a large part of the evil that he was waging war against was in us, in our hearts, <laughs> in the way that we see and approach life. So instead of a military victory, instead of destroying us and the evil with us, he took a different path and he overthrew evil with good. <laughs> he came with healing. He came with a different spirit. He didn't come with violence. He came with love. And when we talk about warfare, don't misunderstand what, what I'm saying. The metaphor is a good one. But it's not, it's not violence that is the true weapon of our war. It's love. It's kindness. It's patience. It's peace. <laughs> right? It's grace. It's a different kind of war. Our war, our war, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against racism and false gospels and attacks against our identity from the evil one. Our wars against powers that will try to kidnap our generation and get it off track from what God wants it to be. That's our war. That's what we're fighting for. Something that I would be willing to spend my life for if we could strike a blow there. Oh my goodness, the impact that we can have. Our wars against the lies that seek to devour our families and our children. The wrong-minded division that fosters hate and violence to no good end. That's what we're standing against. The ideas that, that Christ brings are so anti-that. And it's something that, that we could, <laughs> it's something that we can step into. So when we strike a blow, we don't actually strike a blow, right? We speak a word of, of kindness. We're in a fight. We are. But it's a fight that will be won with love and with peace and with patience and kindness and truth spoken in love. And it's a fight that will be won with courage and balance and great attention to the people that society neglects. So gear up, Serge. We've got some battles to win. Let's pray.